0: Welcome aboard. We will be your guides during this magical journey into the movies. It's the perfect job for us because we love the movies. It's showtime. Ready when you are, CB. Action. Welcome to Monorail Radio episode number 133. I'm Sean. And I'm Jackie. And we are here with a belated St. Patrick's Day celebration as we review and discuss 1959's Darby O'Gill and the Little People. Now, logic would dictate that we would have done this last week since we had Patty's Day, but you can't overlook the 60th anniversary of the absent-minded professor. And it's not all that common that a episode release falls exactly on an anniversary. So we figured it was, listen, we're all still feeling festive, I think, at least I know I am let me ask you a question festive right is this a film that you would watch on or around saint patrick's day
1: well it's funny that you bring that up because we did get to watch this on or around saint patrick's day after we released the absent-minded professor so for us it was like spot on this was kind of perfect timing um yeah, I totally think it's festive for St. Patty's Day. The interesting thing, though, is that I had never seen this. You told me you watched it when you were a kid, but I guess for whatever reason in my mind, that translated to this being a decom because you watched it when you were a kid. I, and Sean Connery's in it. Like, yeah. could that be further? I don't know. I really don't know where I got that from.
0: Neither do I, because... In no world would Sean Connery have done a decom. Debbie a Reynolds. perfect world. Debbie Reynolds, that's one thing. But certainly not Sean Connery. Yeah, I had seen this as a kid a few times. I don't really understand why, though. It was not something that would play on television or on the Disney Channel, on or around St. Patrick's Day every year. Like, I remember watching this as a young child. I think the last time I saw it, I was maybe five years old. And with Disney having acquired ABC, and certainly never being afraid to push their own content to ABC, it sort of became a head-scratcher as to why this movie kind of was lost to
1: time. Especially with a cast like this. I mean, like we said, Sean Connery, and then Janet Monroe, who this is the film that got her her studio contract with Disney, and she went on to do Swiss Family Robinson the next year. Yeah, and it's, I mean, let's be real. It's not like, It's not like there are a lot of movies around
0: St. Patrick's Day. What are you going to do? Put on Boondock Saints? I mean, (laughs) it's just like I can understand like Christmas movies. Like there's only so much time, but there are just so many Christmas movies. How this has fallen out of rotation, whether it be on Disney or AMC or Turner Classic movies, I don't understand why it was lost to time. Could it be that the movie is dated? Well, that's what we're here to discuss today.
1: This review is sponsored by the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Products include Disney and Pixar-inspired 3D straw charms and more. Listeners of Monoreal Radio can get a 10% discount with the code MONOREAL10 at checkout. Visit Instagram or Etsy. Search for Hidden Mickey Supply Co. for all of your straw charm needs.
0: We meet Katie O'Gill, the daughter of Darby O'Gill, who is the caretaker of Lord Fitzpatrick's estate. Darby is getting on in age and spends more time in the pub telling stories of leprechauns than he does maintaining the grounds of the estate. He tells the story of how he encountered King Brian Connors atop Mount Nakashiga. I I got that on the first try. And how Connors- I thought it was
1: Nakashiga.
0: Nakashiga. You're right. I was close. I missed one. You, you say Nakashiga.
1: Okay, Croft.
0: Um, and how Connors granted him three wishes, but he tricked Darby into giving all of them back. At the same time, Lord Fitzpatrick sends Katie to fetch Darby. He tells Darby that he is retiring him at half pay, but he would need to leave the gatehouse and move into the McCarthy cottage. He also tells him that he is replacing him with Michael McBride, who agrees to give Darby two weeks to move out. They also uh, agree not to tell Katie. Meanwhile, Sheila Shugru and her son Pony scheme to try and become the new caretakers while also aiming to marry Katie. Pony is, not Sheila. That night, Darby chases his horse Cleopatra up Mount Naknashiga, I got it that time, and falls down a well into the lair of King Brian and his leprechauns. Turns out that King Brian sent the quote-unquote come-hither for Darby, which he considers a death sentence. Brian explains that he did it to save Darby from his retirement and show him an eternity of fun and distraction. Darby tricks the leprechauns into leaving on a fox hunt and escapes to head home to Katie. Knowing King Brian would follow him, Darby waits him out in a barn, and when he arrives, he tricks the king into drinking and singing all night because once the sun comes up, his magic stops working. Darby sends his cat Ginger after King Brian, so Brian agrees to grant Darby three more wishes to save himself. Darby tosses the king in a sack while he decides on what to wish for. He first wishes for the king to remain by his side for two weeks while he decides his final two wishes. When Darby tries to show Michael the king, he disguises himself as a rabbit to hide his identity and tricks Darby into using his second wish, um, which basically was to get Michael and Katie together. So... King Brian visits Michael and Katie in their dreams, where he tells Michael to marry Katie. The next day, Katie kisses Michael, so Darby agrees to grant his final wish by the next day. Katie receives a card from Lord Fitzpatrick confirming Michael replacing Darby. But when Michael tells her that he wants to marry her so they can stay, she storms out and goes to the pub where Darby is about to grant his third and final wish. When Katie tosses the bag aside, King Brian escapes. That night, Katie chases Cleopatra up Mount Naknashiga and Pony knocks Michael out because he's sort of been trailing him and he frames him as a drunk. Darby, heals, uh, Darby hears the cry of the Banshee, so he and Michael, who is now awoken, go to Mount Naknashiga to find Katie in a grave state. When the death coach arrives for Katie, this took a turn quick, King Brian says that he can't send it away. So Darby wishes himself into Katie's place to save her life. King Brian promises to keep an eye on Katie and Michael, then tricks Darby into using a fourth wish, therefore erasing all of the wishes that Darby had granted. He sends Darby home and instead takes his place in the death coach. When Darby tells the tale at the pub, Pony picks fun at him, but Michael shows up and finally fights Pony, besting him. Darby, Michael, and Katie then head home to the Fitzpatrick estate. Okay, so there is, for a movie that is exactly 90 minutes long, there is an awful lot going on here, and the tone sort of shifts really quickly. And I feel like, now this was based on a series of stories, old Irish folk uh, folklore. And I kind of feel like when you would have these sort of anthology movies, where you you would have a movie... I mean, even going into the 1980s and you think about The Black Cauldron, you take story after story after story and you sort of throw them together to try and make one cohesive film. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. In The Black Cauldron, it doesn't work. In Mary Poppins, it works. In Darby O'Gill and the Little People, I'm wondering... Before we really start diving in here, I'm wondering if this is part of the reason why the film feels lost to time. The, it's, not, it's not a bad film by any stretch of the imagination. Not that I'm trying to ruin my review. But where it does feel dated it is here, where it's a, just a little... I feel it's a little pulled apart. Does, does that make sense how I'm explaining this? And, and perhaps that's why... A more modern audience is not getting exposed to this every year on television
1: it does make sense and i think a little bit of that has to do with the film not being well received at first it is now it's actually at 100 percent on rotten tomatoes mm-hmm. but when the film came out it was criticized a bit because disney actually did not shoot this in ireland Walt himself made four trips over to Ireland for pre-production. He cast all Irish actors, except for Sean Connery, who is, in fact, Scottish. Uh, but they shot it all in California, which was an interesting thing for me to learn. Because, as I said, I thought this was a decom, So <laughs> I came in on... Anything
0: a- <laughs> you learned after learning it was wasn't a DCOM was fascinating to you.
1: Right. I came in on a complete blind. So I did a little bit of homework and... Um, Yeah, came to find out that this was not, in fact, a victim of post-World War II where Disney started traveling overseas because it cost less to shoot over there. Right. Uh, Much like Treasure Island, uh, I believe Bedknobs and Broomsticks. Yeah, there
0: were quite a few of
1: them. Right, and they wanted to shoot movies that, you know, were based in England, were written by English authors, they wanted to do it true to the story. Right. Um so this caught a little bit of flack for having been shot in California and I'm I'm wondering if if it just kind of got off on a bad foot because it wasn't so revered when it first came out for that reason.
0: Yeah, it I think it, I think critically. I feel like the film critics liked it when it came out. It was more the movie-going audience that right. at first found... This is kind of a weird controversy to find with a film. Like, I, I don't know. I feel like, to me, I think people were far less offended by things in 1959. Of all things you could be offended by or have a controversy over, the fact that you shot the movie in California versus Ireland just seems like... you like y- you should get a new hobby and find a better use of your time than find controversy in that. Um, well,
1: I think the other issue too, and I almost forgot this part. You're going to like this. Oh, okay. Uh, when Disney came back, he also told everyone that he found King Brian in Ireland and King Brian told him To make this film. Which I think is brilliant. I mean when you think about the publicity behind the Blair Witch Project. Disney did it first. And
0: I love how
1: when the movie
0: opens. Walt thanks King Brian. Yes. And his jolly gang of leprechauns for allowing them to shoot the film and tell the story.
1: Maybe that's what people took issue with.
0: Maybe. But that's where we start. And you would have had me fooled i think the setting and the backdrops specifically are outstanding peter I, ellenshaw that's all you need to know i never would have guessed had it not been for research that this film was not shot in ireland i mean it's it looks so authentic
1: Right. I mean, you can tell that the backdrops are painted and those with a keen eye for Disney will be able to tell that it an Ellen Shaw who did the backgrounds for Mary Poppins and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I would say just in terms of how flawless it is, the best comp would be Mary Poppins because up until we saw all of that behind the scenes footage, I never knew that they didn't just shoot those scenes with the sunset over London those that's all the Ellen Shaw painting Uh where he even went so far as to poke holes in the back so the light would shine through and make the city look illuminated at night I mean that's how good it is and you can see that here this was earlier work for him and it's seamless as far as seeing these old like, cobblestone buildings up against that gorgeous backdrop.
0: Yeah, I think for certain, when the movie opens, no one no one has or will ever accuse Walt Disney of being cheap. Um, but certainly you can see that they put a lot of time, money, and effort into really making this look as good as they possibly could. So we meet Darby O'Gill. And from the minute he comes on screen, I absolutely love him. He reminds me of everybody's got either that neighbor or that grandparent that loved to tell stories and he loved to pontificate and he loved to entertain people. That's how I feel when I am introduced to Darby O'Gill the first time. He he feels familiar to me because I think we all know that person.
1: Definitely. I would have sat and watched him talk for two hours. He almost in a way, and I wasn't expecting to compare this to Mary Poppins so much. But I guess just you know, because of the era, it is kind of a natural thing to do. But in a way, he reminds me of Bert, how Bert leaves off Mary Poppins and he's got his music and he knows everybody in town and, and you're just kind of like immediately, who is this guy? I want to hear more of your stories. And Darby's right. that same way.
0: The interesting thing about Darby, though, when you compare him to Burt, is Burt, and I say this as lovingly as possible, because God knows Mary Poppins is the greatest film that the studio ever put out, and Dick Van Dyke is a treasure. But he's an overgrown child. And I don't mean that offensively. I mean, today I'm a chimney sweep. Today I'm this. Today I'm that. It's It's like... You're watching, excuse me, a grown child play make-believe. And that's why he is so lovable, especially if you're a child and you grew up watching Mary Poppins, watching the Banks children go with him. It's almost as if they're playing with Bert, so you get to play with Bert. With Darby, his stories sound made up, but he actually experienced All of these things. And being on the outside looking in and being the viewer, I think that it does skew the character in a very interesting way because it's not a is he or isn't he. You know that he has experienced these things. You know he's speaking of truth. And it makes him almost so much more endearing because other than Pony everybody else is just on bated breath with every story that he tells.
1: That was totally the hook for me in the beginning because the way that he's seemingly spinning these yarns, I really thought it was going to be like Beauty and the Beast where he's going to get that crazy old Maurice reputation Mm -hmm. and that's not the case at all. The stories sound absurd, but everyone, audience included, is right on board with him.
0: Mm -hmm. I really like... Now we're off to a very strong start in this movie. And then we meet Sheila. We meet Sheila. We'll talk about her in a minute. I want to I want to talk a little bit more about Darby here and how he does introduce this story with King Brian. And he tells the story of how he went up Mount Naknashiga. And he got his three wishes and he was tricked into using the fourth wish because King Brian just says, well, I'm a generous man. And he plays Darby for a fool and he loses his gold. And and the worst part about it is Darby wished for more gold, not for himself, but for his friends. And I think that this is a really important scene because it sets the stage early for the strained relationship that Brian has with Darby, but it also does a really good job of setting Darby up as not being the old codger, not being the crazy drunk in the bar. He is a genuine person that, of course, he has his own self-interest in mind, but he also cares about other people. I think they did such a good job of setting the stakes, but also developing the, ma- the title character very quickly.
1: You're making a lot of great points and I'm trying to decide what to respond to first. You're um, welcome. <laughs> drop the mic, we're done. Um, yeah, it w- that was a totally unexpected twist because you're right, you do think, like I said, that he's going to be the crazy old man or the town drunk. They even go so far, I think, as to make the joke about the village idiot. Right. Uh, but he's he's not a naive person I mean he does totally get duped by King Brian but it's like you said you learn that he's a generous person it's not that he put everyone before himself because it was the fourth wish and it was only when he found out that he had the extra one did he wish things for all of the other people in his life but you do learn about the generosity um and, and it's just, it, it is totally unexpected that then King Brian's like, nope, it, you just undid everything. Right. It, it makes him feel naive in the moment, but he's not a naive character overall. And from the audience POV, you you really don't know what you're in for from that point forward.
0: Correct. And now you get introduced to Pony as well. You mentioned Sheila before. We saw Sheila early on. And she goes to borrow... Tea. She wanted tea from Katie.
1: From Katie and, and pretty much just inserts herself into every aspect of Katie's life.
0: Yeah. And it's obvious that she wants Katie to marry Pony because they want to become the caretakers of the Fitzpatrick estate and they... They do mention that later on.
1: Again, very much Beauty and the Beast. It's as if Gaston's mother was being a nudge, even though we never meet Gaston's mother. Yeah. That's pretty much what this woman is.
0: Yeah. And Pony is in the pub, and he's picking on Darby, and he's laughing at Darby. And what I thought was interesting here is Pony is a physically intimidating man. He's sort of a big brooding man, and he's the youngest person in this pub. And nobody really takes his trash. You know, you'd kind of think that he would be that Gaston where people would be intimidated by him. But it's as if none of them really take him seriously. And I thought that that was sort of an interesting take on it as well because what I thought was going to happen was that we were going to set up Pony being his own foil. And that's not what happens at all.
1: Yeah, it's almost more like he's the muscle to Sheila's mastermind plan because right. they do establish that she's the one pulling the strings and pushing her agenda. But in actuality, not only is he like this big brooding guy, he's really the town drunk. Because you see him he he has a couple of beers and then he sneaks a couple of shots of whiskey when the barkeeper's not looking. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I love, too, is that I don't think they do it up front. I think it's once Michael gets there that Katie explains that her father's not actually the town drunk. He goes to the town because he's lonely and he, he wants to be in the pub for company because his yep. wife passed. Yeah. And it's a very simple line and they don't develop the idea much more than that and you don't need to but it's a blink or you'll miss it type of moment and it's so important to Darby's character correct
0: and especially now that you've got Pony in the pub it's at this point that the priest walks in and he says you know we're getting a bell our poor little town doesn't have a bell we've been given one for free by another church who got their own they got a new bell and I need somebody with a horse and a carriage to go get it And Pony goes, I'll do it, but how much are you going to pay me? And the priest basically says, you know, I was kind of hoping someone would do it out of their own charity and basically be forgiven for your past sins as a thank you and as a payment for going and doing it. And Darby speaks up immediately, and he's like, I'll do it. I love the story with the bell. It does more in developing Darby as a genuine person But it also shows us that, as lovable as he is, somewhere in there he's got a checkered past, and it kind of makes him more mysterious, which I like because as you start getting into it with King Brian you kind of don't know who to trust. And I like that it's not so straightforward anymore.
1: Exactly. It totally throws you off the trail because it's like, why does he want to be absolved of of all his sins? What is he looking to escape from? And then the movie sort of does it again once he meets King Brian. There's a lot of exposition that happens here before getting Darby down that well. And the first time that I was watching this, I'm I'm thinking, do we really even need all of it? Because if this is his story with King Brian and the leprechauns, I'm thinking this whole movie is going to take place in knock down the well. And I was like, there's a lot of extra information here thinking he's going to stay down there the whole time. So I was really surprised when he managed to get out and then all of this that's happening in the town does come back into play and you do need it. It's very much a layered movie, which I wasn't expecting.
0: Yes, but what they do really well, because you said it, there's a lot of exposition here. A lot of it comes in dialogue, whether it be dialogue with the priest or with Katie or with Michael or with Pony or with uh, King Brian. But it doesn't feel, it never feels like they're trying to clean up for missing information. Does that make sense? Like, in other words, it it doesn't feel like, okay, we had to skip this major part of one of the stories. Okay, we'll we'll just give backstory in in a two-second or or in a two-sentence dialogue, and we'll just fill in the gaps easy like that, and it's sort of sloppy and whatever. Everything sort of seems like it belongs exactly where it is. Am I not explaining this the right way? Do you get what I'm coming from?
1: No, I, I totally agree. because or... I
0: don't think I understand <laughs> what I'm saying.
1: No, but that's that's the thing. If anything, you think you're getting too much information. Yes. But you come to find out that it's not. And my point being, this movie does such a great job, whether it's character or story, of flipping you back and forth. Yeah,
0: I, like I know what I'm trying to say, but I didn't feel like I was articulating it the right way, but I think you just hit it right on the nose. I
1: think I think at this point we just need to note that we're we're not continuing to celebrate St Patty's Day. We did not drink before no. <laughs> before we started recording. I don't know what's going on with us tonight. It's,
0: it's been a long day. Um all right, so now we go we meet Michael Sean Connery has always looked exactly the same. I
1: beg to differ, actually, because for for our generation, I mean, well, it's different for you because you're a huge James Bond fan. If you think our Disney collection of DVDs is insane, you have to see Sean's James Bond collection. He has every single one on Blu-ray. In order. Which I have... Shelf differing opinions about because some of these movies were made before blu-ray was even invented and no matter what you do it's not going to look the same but anyway um that's your sean connery mine is the rock that's how i know him i always you know i've always associated him with the crotchety old man and and of course snl's depiction on celebrity celebrity jeopardy
0: winners go home and never mind i'm
1: not gonna finish the line um But I never really delved into any of his earlier work. And I'm sorry I didn't, because, ladies, I got to tell you, he is crazy handsome in this movie. And I was not expecting it. He is just perfect leading man material.
0: Yeah, and, and the thing that's really interesting about Sean Connery, and I didn't think that's where this show was going. Man, this is really an interesting night. Well, that's um, what I'm saying.
1: I, I never thought of him as, like, the romantic lead, but But he but is. Damn. That's the weird... So, okay, so I think Like, a lot he's a that, smoke show.
0: And I think a lot of that comes from him being James Bond,
1: because... Well, now I want to go back and watch him.
0: Well, we can. I have them all. I, listen, you don't have to twist my arm. Don't threaten me with a good time. But... See, that's... Okay, that's... I'm so glad I said that. He is the type of person that would threaten you with a good time, but he can also be soft and he'd also throw you out a window. Like, he's... Like, he's so versatile and he always was. And, like, it's a shame... 2020 was such a year that I I kind of forget that we lost him in 2020. I know. Um, But he was so unique... And I think, just by virtue of comparing him to other actors who played James Bond, I see that in Timothy Dalton, although he was Bond very, for a very short period of time. And I see it in Daniel Craig. Like, I think Daniel Craig, to me, is the most like Sean Connery, not just in James Bond, I'm talking about as an actor in general. And I think... In Knives Out, you really saw that. Mm. So it's been a while since we found somebody who is really this versatile because, listen, Brad Pitt has had a a hell of a career. Eating. Yes. But he's been the pretty boy. But he's also been in Fight Club. And And the snacker. Right. He's been the snacker in Ocean's 11. But as versatile as Daniel Craig or Sean Connery, no. George Clooney's career is forever stained because of Batman and Robin, in my opinion. Um, Harrison Ford, I'm not going to say... He's certainly not one-dimensional, but I don't look at Harrison Ford as being a romantic leading
1: man. No, he's an action hero. Spielberg made him that action hero. Spielberg was never going to do anything else with him as far as being a romantic lead, and I think that's just kind of how his career went because he, he got that reputation.
0: I, th- You know what? I think even Pierce Brosnan, because now I'm really fixated on Bond. <laughs> even Pierce Brosnan, I don't think, checks all of those boxes. Now, now, some of that could be because he made horrific Bond movies other than Goldeneye. But I just don't see in him... He was never brooding. That's the thing. It's been a long time. Really, it's been since... Sean Connery that we got to a Daniel Craig. And I just can't find a lot of those in between. Maybe Russell Crowe for a while. Maybe. No, but
1: sorry, all I can think of now is Le Miz, because yeah, Russell Crowe is ruined for me. But
0: put Le Miz out. Think about a beautiful think about a beautiful mind. Think about Cinderella Man. Think about Gladiator. Take take Le out. Russell Crowe might be the only one. How Hugh Jack uh Hugh Jackman. I'll give you Hugh Jackman. You you on the same page? Nope. Wolverine.
1: I'm on the Wolverine page right now. <laughs> we gotta
0: get off this tangent. Um
1: <laughs> Sean just threw up his hands at me. All
0: right, we we gotta move on. That's
1: here. not the first time he's done that, but
0: tonight. <laughs> it's not the first time tonight.
1: <laughs> Never on the podcast. No, but I do I do wanna circle back to one thing that you said though. A- as far as you forget sort of that we lost Sean Connery last year in a, in a year of crazy. Um, it, it's just for me, you think of The Rock, you think of Bond, you never think Disney with Sean Connery and you don't really think romance either. But he pulls it off and it's it's just so weird to me that this is where he got his start. And now... After having seen this and being that he passed, this totally changes my perspective. And now he does feel like one of these old time, old classic Hollywood leading men, like a Cary Grant or a um, a Clark Gable. Yes. Or a um, Humphrey Bogart. Okay. And I I would have never associated him with any of those things. But because of this role, he pulled it off. So, yes, to your point, versatile.
0: Fine. Okay. Um, let's go up Mount Knocknashiga. Let's go to King Brian's lair. Let's go down the well.
1: Oh, I'm going to ask a question. Did I start singing Yo-Ho in my head as soon as we went down? Yes, I did.
0: That wasn't my question, but thank you for that. Is the come hither a bad thing? This is, to me, upon a few viewings, because we watched it twice this week. Upon first viewing you think that come hither is this horrible thing because it basically you're dead <laughs> and and you're going to live in the well with the leprechauns but after watching the movie a couple of times and sort of seeing that there is this very strange mutual respect and admiration between Darby and King Brian cuz they really do respect each other as adversaries they go so far as to say it in the death coach I wondered after the second viewing if the come hither is as bad as Darby thought or whether King Brian really was trying to show some appreciation and say, I'm going to take you out of this situation where you're a broken down valise and you can come down here and you can dance and you can sing and you can drink and you can have fun with us. So where are you on this come hither? Is it bad or is it good or... Or are you sort of indifferent on it?
1: That's a great question. My gut reaction is that I want it to be bad just so that the Banshee has more of a payoff later. Because I don't think they lean into that nearly enough. It is such a cool effect. It's a great sight gag. It makes a movie that I didn't think was scary a little a little it gives it a little bit of a horror element. So I wanted more of that. Um, So in that regard, yes, I would have liked the come hither to be bad, but my answer is that no, I don't think it is, especially because King Brian does go so far as to say, come down here and be distracted. So the idea is that you are escaping your life, essentially, and, and, you know, the bad parts of it to go live in this utopia almost. But that's the brilliance of this movie is how it, again, keeps flip-flopping you because if your life was good, then it would be a trap down there. If your life was not great, it would be an escape. And I, I think that's sort of a to each his own
0: yeah, I think it I think you can read into it either way and they never they never come out and say whether it's meant to be good or bad, whether it's malicious or whether it's charity. Right. I think upon the first viewing it's malicious, by the second time it's charity, but I'm interested to hear from the listener you know, if you guys have seen it or if you do watch the film after you hear our show here, let us know. Twitter, Instagram, Facebook at Monoreal Radio or email us, Radio at com. Is the come hither a good or a bad thing?
1: To answer the question definitively for Darby, though. Mm-hmm. I would say it's a bad thing because even though he wants the gold, he wants to get out. Because
0: he wants to go home to Katie.
1: Right. So, like yeah, I never believed he was going back for his pipe. No, that never. was a bold-faced lie. Of course it is. But
0: Darby views it that way, but do you think that King Brian do you think that King Brian set it up so that he could take Darby away from Katie maliciously or do you think he was really trying to do him the favor?
1: I think he was trying to save him because he did know about the deal that he was losing his job.
0: Right. And that they were going to retire him.
1: Right. And the other thing is that he... It's its very subtle until the dream sequence. This film is also billed as a romance. And like I said, I never got that from Sean Connery, even though he pulls it off. The romance aspect isn't a huge part of the plot, or seemingly it's not a huge part of the plot. Because you know that Michael and Katie are going to end up together. But the subtlety is that King Brian is rooting for them all along and he's been planting the seeds, but he knows that he can get Katie married off and that she's going to be okay. I think King Brian knows that Darby has very little left in his life being that he's a widower. Now they're taking his job away. So the only thing really that's left is Katie and, Katie is devoted to her father because she could be married off and she's not. She wants to take care of him. So I think King Brian sees this opportunity as, Darby, I'm doing you a favor. Come down here, live out the rest of your days and have fun with us. And I got Katie. I'm going to make sure she's okay for you.
0: Mm -hmm. You mentioned the special effects a few moments ago. And I think they really show the most in this scene. These effects from 1959. Amazing. They're better than anything they put on screen today. That might be a hot take, and I don't care.
1: I, I don't think it is. I, I mean, I agree with you, obviously, but the the it's just forced perspective. It's forced perspective in a couple of strings, and it looks flawless, except for there's one scene. It's just one, and it's minutia. But I have to call it out. When he first falls down the well, uh, and they do the first force perspective, you see two of King Brian's men. They're they're trying to figure out if Darby's alive or not, and they're at his feet. So clearly, they made oversized feet. So you see the shoes and the legs of Darby. Yeah, and then Darby starts flailing around. But the feet are sort of moving side to side. It's just an unnatural movement. Like your body wouldn't move that way. If your arms were flailing, your legs would be going kind of in and out and mm-hmm. kicking. Versus here, they're just, the ankles are rotating a little bit. So that's the only knock that I have against it. And it's it's not even at the effect because they pull it off. It's just that you got to get the anatomy right when you do something like that. Otherwise... Sure. It screams.
0: You're watching a movie. Exactly. How about the sight lines? They're seamless. Incredible. Yeah. The whole film, the sight lines are seamless, but it really shows through here because this is the first time you are really seeing Darby interact with the other leprechauns or with King Brian, and he's having that really great dialogue with him. And who, who tells the, the tale of you? You do, Darby. And who tells people tip their hat? and restock? You do, Darby. Th- this whole scene is so good. And it's got such a... Like a very big background cast. Yeah. I mean, it's huge. And the other thing that this really shows off, other than the great sets and the really spectacular special effects, are the costumes. The costumes in this movie are incredible. And what's so wonderful about them here, you have such this huge background cast, and every costume is unique, and it's different. And they all pop, and they all shine. I mean, they don't get lost at all here.
1: I would say this cast is probably bigger than Babes in Toyland, and, and that's something comparable too because same thing they were it, it was a large dance sequence several of them and there were a lot of unique looking costumes uh, but I think here they did it a million times better. I'm just surprised and I love the sequence this isn't a knock against it I'm just surprised that they didn't do more step dancing. They
0: did some. It's
1: This is more line dancing, yeah. sort of. I would have liked to see something more traditional, but it still looks amazing.
0: It looks good, not great. Yes. um, I would go so far as to say it's good, not great. I love that Darby keeps with the storytelling, though, because he gets the fiddle, And he's going to play this Foxtrot song or the Fox Hunt song so that he can trick them into leaving and he can escape. But he spins yarns about and my grandfather would tell me it's just like it's so on brand for this character as is having a hole in his pocket when he tries (laughs) to take the jewels and escape with some riches and show everybody that he actually was in Mount Knocknashiga with King Brian and of course... He has a hole in his pocket and he loses all of the jewels. Everything about this scene is just spectacular and it makes Darby even more endearing and I didn't think that would be possible.
1: You're absolutely right. And even though there's that moment of, oh, when you see the hole, it's not even about him getting the riches and for the monetary value. It's about proof. He just wants that proof.
0: Yeah. And you see this play out more in the next scene where he knows... I mean, Darby is very smart, so he tricks King Brian into coming to the barn where they can drink all night. I absolutely love this scene. I love the wishing song. I think that it's funny. I think it's a great scheme by Darby. I love the horse. The animal actor is really, really good, and he's really funny and kind of shaking his head and falling asleep, and I love how they basically get drunk because they're singing 79 verses of this song and that's how Darby keeps him there all night. This is really a very strong scene.
1: Nag is amazing, but I think this is my favorite scene. Just because yeah. of the the interaction between the two of them is even better. And, and the song is just so funny. It's so it's good. It's really great. And
0: I love that Darby bests him here. And he throws him in the sack because now he thinks, well, I'm basically going to hold you hostage till I get my wishes and I have the proof so nobody will think that I'm crazy anymore.
1: Right. And all he had to do, he had to keep him there all night because King Brian's powers don't work during the day. So all he needed to do was buy a couple of hours and he sure figured out how to pull that off.
0: I think that some of the best dialogue in this movie, because this movie has really snappy, funny, quick wit. Yes, But when you get back into the house and Katie and Michael are having breakfast because Darby's been out all night and he comes back and he sees that Sheila was there because she had come to return the tea that she borrowed. And he says he asks Katie, are you wearing your holy medal? In other words, are you wearing your cross? He said, because she might be a witch. <laughs> And how Katie kind of shuts him down and, for all intents and purposes, says, shut up and eat your breakfast. And he turns and he looks at Michael and he says, got a tongue that could clip a hedge.
1: Probably my favorite line of the movie.
0: It's brilliant. And I, like I feel like this is the type of thing I would overhear sitting in an authentic Irish pub.
1: Absolutely. And I wish... I wish that they had written Sheila more like that because I feel like she would have been... I mean, she's insufferable and she's supposed to be. And she's a great character because, you know, I, I say it all the time, she successfully annoyed me. It's nothing against the actress. It's just the way that she's written and they pulled off the character because you just can't stand her. But if they had written her more like this with these backhanded compliments. If she was trying to nudge Katie and Pony together, you know, in that scene in the beginning where she's like, well, you're not going to have your looks forever and you know, 20, you can get away with it, but 30, what are you going to do? Um, I I wish there had been more of like those thinly veiled insults that we as the audience get to read more into than Katie does. And I, I think that would have made her a lot more likable and it would have added humor rather than those one liners that are peppered in and they're wonderful. But I think it would have punched it up a little bit more.
0: Mother Gothel, right? There you go. Mother Gothel probably does that better than any other character that we've seen really in any Disney film. I mean, she's... I gave Tangled a perfect score, and I think she is a most perfect character. And I think that if I... I, And because I agree with you, if I was going to wish Sheila to be something more, I'd want to see more of Mother Gothel in her than anything else. That's a great comparison. I love when Darby walks around with King Brian in the sack the effect of the kicking bag, because clearly they just have a little mechanism in there that's just kicking back and forth to, it's a great practical effect, giving you the, the, the feeling that King Brian is actually in this sack. The only thing about it that I don't love is when he picks King Brian up to put him in a sack. It's a doll.
1: And you can tell it's I don't every but that it's a doll. Here's
0: the thing I don't care that you can tell it's a doll. It's 1959. He's quite large. Like, proportionately, yes. he's bigger than the actual character is. It's the equivalent of, like, if you were playing, uh, I'm dating myself, but I'm in my mid 30s. I don't know how, what else to compare this to. Imagine having a G.I. Joe and a Ken doll. G.I. Joe is like your kind of average size action figure, but a Ken doll, you know, those Barbie dolls, they were taller, they were leaner, they were just kind of bigger. If I had to compare it to anything, it would be if you had a G.I. Joe in front of you the whole time, and when somebody picked him up, he's the size of a Ken doll.
1: Yeah, that's, that's a pretty good illustration there. But do you think... I mean, I think it was just a production error that yes. they made this doll for the sake of of stuffing it in the sack. I don't think that that's how big he was supposed to be
0: I'm not sure I'm just saying it it is a little distracting because you've see you see him in two different scales.
1: Right. I thought I read somewhere and I I could be totally wrong. I thought I read somewhere that he was supposed to be 21 inches tall. So obviously this doll effect is going to to break that. But that's kind of a big miss if you're trying to keep that consistency.
0: Because when he's standing next to Darby, I, I, I don't even think he stands close to a foot tall you're right. right i think they said 21 inches but he doesn't he doesn't look it
1: no and i get i get why they didn't go for practical here because then you got to put the actor on strings and then you got to do the whole i'm i would assume they use the sodium vapor here like they did in mary poppins to get him in the bag so i get where they tried to go practical just to get him in but if you're gonna bother to do it you gotta keep it to scale like he should have instead of and that's the thing aside from the doll just looking bad because it it folds at the waist like he essentially folds King Brian in half and stuffs him in a bag I would think keep it to scale you would just like pluck him between your two fingers and then drop Drop him 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 in. in yeah
0: um now from here on out the movie really does take quite a turn you have this budding romance between Michael and Katie, and I buy it. Like I it it is a forced relationship for all intents and purposes, but it doesn't feel that way.
1: I mean, it's it's gonna be forced because King Brian is trying to orchestrate it. Darby supports it. He's trying to to push them together. Um, But there's definitely a flirtation between them. And I think that that's not just a compliment to the writing, it's also a compliment to the acting. Oh, because yeah. Because the chemistry is palpable.
0: And what's vastly different here, when you look at Katie, without delving too much into character, because we'll do that shortly, but because we're on the topic of here, of this relationship, what's really interesting to me here is that You know, it's 1959. So a lot of the early Disney films, you had the princess wanting her prince charming. And in this case, you've got Michael, who's clearly got interest in Katie even before King Brian gets involved. But she's the one kind of being coy with him and sort of giving him the cold shoulder. At first. She does until she doesn't. But I thought it was sort of interesting that... They sort of, I think they They kind of, she's very progressive for 1959.
1: Definitely, and she's not just coy. She's very independent, and she says as much, I want to be courted, but you just said it. That's where it all fall, falls apart. She does until she doesn't. There's no real rhyme or reason why all of a sudden she allows herself to be caught, and I, I think that was kind of a miss because... In the one scene, Pony tries to... to Well, He, she goes out dancing one night. He takes her home. Then the next day he goes after her and she pretty much says, no, I'm with Michael. But I feel like we were sort of missing a little bit of connective tissue there mm-hmm. for her to realize, well, my options are Pony if I don't let this guy win.
0: Right. I think... Yeah, you 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 had said when we watched it the first time, you were like, "This is the most awkward kiss I've ever seen." When she sort of runs up from behind him and grabs him, and like he's not even completely in front of her, and she does plant quite an awkward kiss on on an actor that later becomes James Bond and just kisses every woman that he sees.
1: That's what I could not get over with him. I'm like, "That's your kiss, dude!" Like I know she was the one who initiated it. I know that he wasn't expecting it, but I was like, for crying out loud, did we not do a take two? And it, the whole thing is awkward. I mean, there's there's like a foot between them.
0: Oh, I think there's more than that.
1: Yeah, I, but he, he he doesn't even like bend at his knees to help her out a little bit.
0: Yeah. It's almost like I, I like I feel like she stepped on his feet. <laughs>
1: or but that's the thing she runs down the hill and runs right up to him they don't cut away where you could have put her on like an apple box or something to to make up the height difference but it's just such an angle his his neck is like bent and it kind of looks like two fish going at it and it was so disappointing (laughs) because (laughs) because I didn't think it was that funny. But it's so disappointing because you have the chemistry you've got and I I yeah. went so far as to say it before you've got this incredibly handsome leading man and like this is our moment there's no payoff
0: well, because perhaps, this
1: kiss is so bad. But maybe we
0: needed this bad kiss to set up all of the really like passionate ones in the James Bond movies. That came after this. I think no, Connery no, 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 needed a learning no, no, no. experience.
1: This kiss is so bad. I'm surprised he got cast as Bond. This should have ruined him. It was that bad. So it's
0: you know what. It's sort of interesting that you say that because this was one of his first roles, right? And if I'm being honest with you, I had to do a bit of research because I could not figure out. As much as I love him, and he he has he he was a treasure. I couldn't figure out how he got cast as James Bond at first.
1: Not from this. Not but, from right, that kiss.
0: But he had other films that he had done, and he had been a stage actor, and they kind of wanted an unknown because they were signing him to do five films. So you could get him cheap. And he, he himself, years later, admitted that he, did, he wasn't comfortable with doing as many James Bond films as he did, but he thought it would be good for his career, and that's the only reason why he did it. Hmm. So I'm I'm thinking that's probably how they got it, but in this case, he doesn't kiss the girl very well. He gets beat up by Pony. It, it was not a strong audition to be James Bond, <laughs> but they, luckily for us, he got the role.
1: No, that is actually my note that this is the most awkward kiss in the history of cinema.
0: You've never seen Chuck and Larry with (laughs) (laughs) Adam Sandler and Kevin James. Um, All right, second, uh, second.
1: (laughs) I have seen Chuck and Larry. It's the second most awkward
0: (laughs) awkward. (laughs) Uh, kiss. Talking about things that are awkward and sort of come out of nowhere, let's talk about the Banshee. (laughs)
1: All right, see, this is where I'm disappointed. Pepper's ghost, it's the oldest trick in the book, and yet, do we not all happily get into a doom buggy and sing along and pray that we're going to be the thousandth happy haunt every single time that we go? Hurry back. It's the coolest effect in the world, right? Right. There should be more here. Here's
0: my thing with the Banshee. It comes out of nowhere.
1: That's what I'm saying. If they had tied it back to the come hither, it would have been so much more effective. I don't
0: even care if it ties back to the come hither, but they make mention. Well, Katie's the one that makes the mention early that her mother had passed away.
1: Well, uh, Yeah, and and you could give us a little bit more backstory there because then Darby says it was the Banshee.
0: But I'm saying at some point I wish... I wish even as, as a throwaway line that Darby would have mentioned the Banshee. It doesn't even have to be with the come hither, but he could have been talking to Michael. He could have been talking to King Brian. It could have been anything. There's no mention of it. And all of a sudden the thing shows up and he's like, the Banshee. It, it's, it's what got your mother. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's basically it.
1: No, and when he first said it, I, I was like, did I did I totally miss something? Like did I miss a beat? like I was like, I didn't get up to go to the bathroom during this movie. What did I miss here? And it it truly comes out of nowhere. And you could even write it off in such a way that Knona Shegan is just just full of lore and I would buy it, but you needed somebody else to say it before this point. Correct.
0: And it just never happens. So when it does happen, it's very startling, and the and the tone of the film is totally different because you just spent the last hour and 15 minutes watching Leprechauns dance, watching people fall in love, and now here comes the Banshee and the Death Coach, and it's like kind of like a horror film. I, I don't mind that it's there. My issue is how it gets introduced. Right. Because... It is just, it's almost like it happens spontaneously.
1: Right. And I mean, granted, we're going to suspend some disbelief because we're watching a movie about leprechauns. But up until this point, all of the folklore, it's all believable. I'm on board for all of it. Nothing, I mean, aside from the fact that we're dealing with leprechauns, nothing is really out of the ordinary here. I buy the relationship between King Brian and Darby. I buy that they are adversaries. I buy that this this whole time they've sort of been keeping an eye out for each other. Yeah. So the fact that there is a Banshee in this world, I'll, I'll totally buy into that notion. Just give me more of a how. I, I don't even need the why, just the how.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you have much else on the plot here? before we move on into character. You know, I have something I want to add, actually.
1: Yeah, and I got one more. Go ahead.
0: When King Brian takes Darby's place in the Death Coach, I really didn't see that coming. Nope. I think that it was a perfect end. I thought it was a perfect end to their conflict. In a weird way, a perfect end to their friendship. And I thought it was a perfect end to the film. You just don't see this coming. I'd go so far as to say, and some people may think I'm crazy, but when you don't know that it's going to happen, it's one of the best twists I've seen in any film, period.
1: That is what i was going to hit on because when when you strip this down what you realize is that all of these twists and turns that have happened come from Darby simply not telling the truth to Katie about why Michael's really there and that he's going that he lost his job and they're going to have to move into the cottage but they're they're still going to ma- you know remain on this land right and if he had just shot straight with her, a lot of the things that happened after he escaped from King Brian could have so easily been avoided. Um, and, and that does sort of get swept under the rug because then, you've, then the Banshee comes and it's completely unmotivated and then your focus is on the Banshee. I feel like they could have tied that together more if it became a story about how the banshee cost him his wife and then maybe king brian knew that and that's why you know he he does say it a couple of times i know you're a good man i know you're a good man and that is demonstrated when he has the three wishes and then he's trying to use the fourth wish to wish the town rich right and King Brian knows he's looking out for his daughter's best interest. But if there was maybe a little bit more there that King Brian knew something about his wife, and that does tie back to the banshee, it it would have just taken what are a very few loose ends and brought it all together and, and just made the film completely cohesive. Um but as far as what you said about King Brian showing up to take his place, I don't think he was ever going to take his place. I I think he knew the whole time that he was going to get him to to do the fourth wish and it would have undone everything.
0: Right, but remember something. King Brian says when the death coach comes, it can't go he cannot send it away, but it can't go back empty. So Well,
1: that's why Darby takes Katie's place.
0: Right, but then king brian has him wish the fourth wish undoing everything which means darby is out of the death coach but king brian remains in it because the death coach can't go back without a passenger
1: oh i didn't even catch that honestly
0: so that now it now it must really kind of change things for you.
1: No, but then wouldn't it it undoes everything? Everything include the death coach is coming for Katie. So if you are undoing that she's sick, it's never gonna come.
0: It's still going to come, but she's made well because she's not the one that's in the death coach,
1: right? Because Darby took her place, but he he made his fourth wish. It undoes everything. So it, then she was never getting in
0: it doesn't undo the death coach because the death coach has already arrived. Yes, it undoes all of the other wishes, but the death coach arrived because the death coach coming for Katie has nothing to do with a wish. She fell on Mount Naknashiga. So that was coming for her anyway, independent of wishes. So when it arrives, it came for her. Darby takes her place. That was his third wish. Right. And King Brian says, I can't send it away because once it comes, it has to go back with somebody. When the fourth wish is made, it doesn't prevent what happened to Katie from happening. It's already happened. All it does is take Darby O'Gill out of the death coach, but it still needs a passenger, and that passenger is King Brian.
1: Wow. Wow. No, I didn't even realize that.
0: So King Brian, for all intents and purposes, sacrifices himself and gives up his wonderful life and his royalty and his gold and his fun so that Darby can live out the rest of his days with Katie and Michael.
1: Hmm.
0: I'm thinking your entire review of this movie has completely changed.
1: Yeah, well, I, I will say this, that Banshee was a lot more distracting than I thought because that's what I was harping on for the final moments of this movie. And the gesture of Darby taking Katie's place, but I didn't realize that there was one more twist in there.
0: We lose King Brian.
1: Yeah. No, this movie constantly keeps flipping on itself.
0: Mm -hmm. All right, let's talk about some of these characters a little bit more. Albert Sharp, Darby O'Gill, what do you say? One of the most underrated underappreciated often forgotten about and it's a damn shame characters in a disney film absolutely there's not much else to say about him katie ogill played by janet monroe i saw when i saw her face i said i know this girl from somewhere and i have no idea from what i know her from and we just talked about swiss family robinson
1: like, just talked about it. That celebrated its 60th anniversary She's a few un- months ago.
0: unrecognizable.
1: And she looks older in this film. That's what threw me so much. Right. She's got shorter hair in Swiss Family Robinson. But I, I don't know. Maybe it's the tan. Maybe it's because they were, they were shooting on an island.
0: And they cut her hair really short and it was red.
1: Yeah. But usually that makes you look, like, older and more mature.
0: Well, I guess because in Swiss Family Robinson... Her grandfather was trying to make her look like a young boy, so the pirates...
1: And she's the love interest of, a te- not a teenage boy, but...
0: Early 20s? Late teens, early 20s? Yeah. Kind of hard to say.
1: Yeah. But, but she's supposed to be much younger looking in that movie, and, I mean, that's the weird thing. It They were only, like, a year apart.
0: Mm-hmm. She's really good in this movie. She's and excellent. I, I think the actress is as good as the character is, because... I love Katie's wit. I love her independence, but she is until she isn't, right? I mean, we mentioned it before. I think that's really the only flaw with Katie in this film.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the only thing that bothers me about her because otherwise she's such a strong character. She is so far ahead of her time. She really is like Belle. She's not going to settle for anything less than she thinks that she deserves. Mm Mm-hmm. And, and she cares about her father. I mean, she, she really was the early Belle. And, and I love everything about her, except just I just needed that one more decisive moment of why it's not even a question of that she wanted to be with Michael, because we know she did. We know there was a flirtation. We know the chemistry was there. It's just why did you let him have it?
0: Sean Connery, Michael McBride. Incredible. He sings in this movie, The Pretty Irish Girl. He was not comfortable with singing. They almost dubbed him over and they decided not to. The man carries a two they're like what what does he not do well at this point other than have a kissing scene.
1: <laughs> but we can forgive that because when he sings Swoon, he's he's absolutely amazing. Like who knew he has such an amazing voice and I would have never thought he was uncomfortable doing it because he pulls it off so well.
0: What I like about Michael here is that he is the love interest, but he he's kind of awkward, right? He's a little socially awkward, and, and I feel like his vulnerability makes him more human. James Bond is not a human being, but Michael McBride is, and it's such a stark contrast between the two that I really do like where they went with this character and showing that for as confident as he is, he does have flaws. I mean, I I think for the most part, other than Pony and his mother and King Brian for obvious reasons, like these all feel like real people. These feel like people that are in your town. You know them. You've had dinner with them. You've laughed with them. They all feel so authentic.
1: What I like about him, too, is that from the jump, he's willing to go along with Darby's plan of not telling Katie and he'll do whatever Darby's comfortable with because he doesn't want to rock the boat. And he he's pushing because he doesn't think that his father should be lying to his, or that a father should be lying to his daughter. Um, but he's also not trying to capitalize on their situation either, which I like mm-hmm.
0: Jimmy O'Day. As King Brian. He is so much fun. But what I think I like most about him is... Upon first viewing, you really don't know whether he's a good guy or a villain or somewhere in between. You don't know if you can trust him. There's this this unique sense of humor. And there are layers to him that I think are very much understated i think jimmy o'day did such a great job with this character
1: he's fantastic on his own but what really puts it over the top are those scenes opposite darby they're they're just incredible it's it's like um i mean i guess if i had to compare it to something probably pirates you you've got a bunch of great actors and a talented cast, but the way that they bounce off of each other—like when you think of of Johnny Depp against Jeffrey Rush—it's incredible. They're great on their own, but together, th- there's just magic in those scenes. And I think that that's what's happening here.
0: Mm-hmm. Estelle Winwood plays the widow Sheila Chagru. Uh, she's good.
1: Well, she's great. I mean, she's really great because, like I said, I, I can't stand her. Love to hate her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I
0: mean, I guess because we've seen this played out quite a few times, to me, she doesn't stand out as being any better than any other character, like I mentioned Mother Gothel earlier. She's good. She's the brains behind the operation, but it, it to me, her plan is basically, you're tall, dark, and handsome, so you can work hard and the girl's gonna want you. That's kind of like where her plan ends she doesn't seem like she's like she's not thinking three steps ahead she's just like yeah okay good enough this will work
1: well i mean she doesn't necessarily have some elaborate scheme that she's running where she needs to be three steps ahead but to me her defining moment is when pony is ready to give up the girl and he's kind of like oh well there's this other guy whatever and, and she pretty much tells him that no son of mine is just going to sit back and let that happen. And she really twists the knife in to make sure that he, he runs Michael out of town. And and that's where it's the brains and the brawn. Because then he, he poses Michael to be a drunk mm-hmm. and leaves him on the doorstep with the bottle in his hand.
0: Right. Pony Chagru is played by Kieran Moore. And yeah, he's just... He's good. He's a good brooding antagonist. You need one. He works. I love his arrogance, actually. Mm. Um, I thought that he was very well cast, and I thought that the character worked for this film. Definitely. All right. So, final thoughts on 1959's Darby O'Gill and the Little People. I'll let you go first.
1: Well... Even now with this realization about King Brian, my opinion hasn't changed. Um, Does this movie feel dated? A little bit just in the context of that it's an older film, obviously, and some of the filmmaking devices that they use. But otherwise, if we're talking about story, this is a classic tale. I think that anybody at any age can appreciate this film. Um, I'm not going to say it's as good because this is my favorite movie and nothing will ever go up against it. But it kind of does remind me of The Wizard of Oz in that you could sit any child down and they'll be mesmerized with that movie. You can sit any adult down and they'll be enchanted with it. And I feel like this is similar in that way is that the story's great. It's a lot of fun. The sets are amazing. I feel like at any age, you can just find things to appreciate about this film. And I, I do think that even though it is a bit dated, It was sort of lost to time, and I feel like more people should be talking about this.
0: It's not perfect, because there are some parts of the story that are janky. I think that's where, if the movie feels dated, that's where it feels dated. You know, sort of primitive storytelling um, when it comes to these anthology movies where you're taking 10 or 15 or 20 stories, and you're trying to take... And, and put it into 90 minutes on screen. But past there, this is an all-around forgotten classic. The sets are incredible. The costumes are great. The score is wonderful. The, the cast, I, I don't understand why on St. Patrick's Day every year they run those ridiculous leprechaun horror movies in a marathon. <laughs> and not one place do you ever see Darby O'Gill and the Little People and i don't understand why this film was lost to time i don't i don't understand why i have not seen this film on television on st patrick's day since the very early 90s i i can't fathom why this is the case there's really nothing there's nothing vastly controversial about it it doesn't feel like an old movie i mean Yes, The Wizard of Oz is a classic. But you know you're going to see it every year on Thanksgiving. It's a wonderful life. It, it's a classic, but it is so played out. Hello, movie house. Like, <laughs> you know, it's Merry Christmas. You know, every time the bell rings. Yeah, you wins. know what I'm saying? Like, I think it's been parodied so many times. But like, that feels like an old movie. It's not much older than this. But every year, you're going to see it on television. I cannot justify definitively why this film has been forgotten about. I think of all of the movies we have talked about, you know, we talk about it's not a perfect film. Um, I'm not going to rank it in my top five films that we've reviewed of all time on this show, but if I were to have a top five most forgotten about Disney movies... I think this is, if it's not number one, it's got to be in the top three.
1: I would agree with that. I mean, like I said, I, I thought it was decom, and that is shameful. I mean, it's it's not like we just did Absent-Minded Professor, where that's a title that you at least know, and it's maybe just a case of you haven't gotten around to watch it. This is Buried.
0: And there's no reason why. But we want to know what you have to say about Darby O'Gill and the little people. You can let us know your thoughts on the film on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. News of the week is coming up, but first, a quick break. Hey,
2: everyone. This is Brian down here in South Florida. I'm about two hours south of Disney, and when it comes to planning vacations, Jackie's the way to go. I have a quick story for you. When it came to booking my family vacation for my two-year-old daughter and my wife, you know, like everybody, I immediately went to the internet, started scouting prices, compiling lists, and uh, building my perfect vacation at Disney. Just out of curiosity, I reached out to Jackie. She mentioned she was uh, booking vacations for many people. So I gave her my uh, list, my itinerary. She looked it over, and when she came back to me, she gave me her recommendations in regards to the parks. However, she also had new pricing associated with it Um, I've learned that going on my own doesn't necessarily mean that I'll be getting the best pricing Jackie was able to beat the majority of the pricing within my list and saving me a ton of money but she has the insight and the connections to do so on top of that it was stress free so all my vacations in the future are going to be through her because I don't have to think about it she plans it I give her some information in regards to what I want to do What my plans are for that week when i go visit disney and she'll make it happen and create the itinerary for me she's a market expert myself i go into a park i immediately hop on the next line i get a few fast passes and at the end of the day i don't accomplish everything like i would want to she advised on which rides to attack first which restaurants i should schedule on what day and how to properly allocate my time to maximize my vacation it was an amazing process thanks guys talk to you soon Way to go, Monorail! Keep it going. So
1: if you would like completely free assistance planning your Disney vacation, you can get in touch with me through any of our social media outlets, or you can email me at j.zolezzi, that's Z-O-L-E-Z-Z-I, at magicalvacationplanner.com.
0: News this week is brought to you by Karma and Kismet Designs. Kelly has so much fun developing these products for you. If you want that touch of Disney in your life, whether it be uh, home decor, art, perhaps stationary or a custom invitation or a custom. Star
1: Wars table settings for your wedding. She, she, she's amazing.
0: She's got it all. Check them out online. And of course, you can get a 10% discount at checkout with the code MONOREAL10. Online, karmaandkismetdesigns.com. That's karma, the letter N, kismetdesigns.com. Falcon and the Winter Soldier dropped this week. Oddly enough, I feel like it didn't get the attention that WandaVision got,
1: not in the promos, not in the fan reaction, not in any facet.
0: And I think the reason for that is because this feels like something in the MCU. Nothing against WandaVision because it was ru- it was great, but it was so different and it was so unique that it really was its own thing. We've not seen anything like this before in the MCU. To me, Falcon and the Winter Soldier just feels like any Marvel movie that we've seen. And don't mistake that with me saying I don't like it. I thought for a pilot, it was a really great episode, and I'm really excited to continue this journey with the Falcon and the Winter Soldier. But I'm thinking because it lacks uniqueness, that's why it's not really getting talked about. I feel like More people were fixated on the quote-unquote new Captain America that we got at the end of the episode than they were about the debut in totality, if that makes sense.
1: Well, I feel like that was kind of the plan. I mean, for Falcon and Winter Soldier, you have your Captain America fans and your your Avengers purists that are just going to roll right into this. I feel like with WandaVision, Disney saw the opportunity to hook a new audience where if you're not into the MCU, uh, I think they certainly targeted the female demographic. I think they used WandaVision as a hook for a new audience. This it's kind of like we knew what we were getting. We know the basis of the story. We know the origin story and now here you go. We're going to continue on, and you know they did a great job. The they I don't want to say too much because I don't want to spoil it if anybody hasn't seen it yet. But um, I am surprised at where just just where Sam and Bucky are in their own lives aside from their roles as Avengers. Just where they are in their everyday, I think it was an interesting place to put both of them, and an interesting jumping point for this story. Uh, it, it's just unexpected. You wouldn't. It, it's the equivalent of seeing Thor in New Asgard when he's got the beer gut. Right.
0: Uh, Disneyland. Okay, so we had a touch of Disney this past weekend. I am not above admitting that I saw the video of. Radiator Springs getting lit up at Cars Land for the first time in over a year. And to quote Michael Myers, I was a little um, It's We're a year into this nonsense. It's unimaginable to me that the lights at Disneyland have not turned on in a year. This feels like... That's the it was the most twilight zone moment I've had in the last year. D- you know what I mean? Like everything has been so surreal, but coming to that realization that like this is the first time those lights have been turned on in a year. That's the most twilight zone I have felt this whole time. And I know that's kind of a weird thing, but I don't know. It's just it was surreal to to hear that and surreal to see it.
1: No, I totally get that because I feel like once Walt Disney World opened, it was that beacon of hope and it was a step in the right direction and a a step towards getting back to normal. And obviously, you know, we've gotten to we got down there. We got to experience it. We have have felt our normal. And that's not to say that we're sitting here going, well, great, we have ours. Too bad, California, right. because we've been pulling for them the entire time. But, yeah, it's it's just weird because I, I guess because we've talked about this, maybe not on the show, but during quarantine, our heads were always at Disney. Like, what what's happening while the parks are closed? When is it going to reopen? And... I guess that that never really left my mind is when is it going to reopen when is it going to reopen but it still seems like this feels like every bit of a year but when you think about it in terms of Disney to me a year is unfathomable that it's been closed it it still feels like it's only a couple of months and Florida just reopened and and we're just waiting on California too it doesn't seem like California was out the whole year and I I totally agree I had tears in my eyes and I had such joy all weekend looking at everybody's posts from California who got to experience a touch of Disney so if you went we want to know about it please keep the pictures coming um, but if if you'd like to share your experience with us and what it was like, please shoot us an email or DM us on our social media. We'd love to hear about it.
0: Yeah, they're reopening the Disneyland Resort on April thirtieth. Um
1: What happened to April first? Was that April, a joke? Like no, does anybody first.
0: No, so April first was the date that California would allow theme parks to start opening again. Ah. but as we know Listen, Disney op- in, in Walt Disney World in Orlando opened a couple of weeks after Universal Studios did. So I think Disney, they're not afraid to hold back a little bit more and, and really work on getting it right. Um, I'm a little surprised they didn't jump at the opportunity if they could reopen on April the 1st. But it'll be April the 30th, and um, I can't... I can't really vocalize how relieved I am for the cast members to come back to work. 10,000 people are coming back to work in California. I can't really articulate how excited I am for the people of Anaheim and in Southern California to get their park back because Disneyland is not the vacation destination that Walt Disney World is. Yes, people will travel there on vacation. They'll go. But, I mean, that is such a locals' park. And I can't imagine the pain, the fear, the confusion of not having that place in a year where you needed a place like that. You know, to kind of touch on what you said, and I I think I've mentioned it on the show before, but it bears repeating, I mean, look, I like what I do for a living, but we all have bad days at work. My go-to has always, when I'm having a real crap day, my go-to is always take a breath, close your eyes, and just think about where you are in Walt Disney World. And I'm 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 in one of two places every time I shut my eyes. I'm either at Dockside Margaritas, which says a lot about us, or I'm standing or I'm standing in front of Spaceship Earth. Those are the two places I am. And for the few months that Walt Disney World was closed, I I couldn't picture it. Because part of me picturing it is: all right, I'm having this horrendous day, but somewhere, somebody's having a churro. Somewhere, somebody is on space you know spaceship earth somewhere somebody's on space mountain i have never felt i've never felt so vulnerable in my life
1: so cut off and so dis- disconnected so
0: i i all i can say is this is overdue this is about time this should have happened months ago that's the most i will say on it But I am happy, I am relieved for everybody involved that it's back, or that it is coming back. And I think now is where we really start to feel that Disney as a company is is together again. I'll feel better once we start getting more theatrical releases. That's going to come in time, but I feel like Instead of the Band-Aid, I, I feel like it, it like Disney as a company is now starting to heal, if that makes sense.
1: It does. No, I agree.
0: But, yeah, please let us know if you guys attended uh, A Touch of Disney this past weekend or if you are going to be going on April the 30th. You can let us know on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also email us, monorealradio at gmail.com. We want to hear from you. Thank you guys so much for joining us on the show this week. Hey, don't forget, next week on the show, we've got a monorail radio roulette. So why don't you guys throw us some numbers? We love when you give us numbers because God only knows what we land on. Sometimes it's Black Panther. Sometimes it's the cat from outer space. That's the beautiful thing about about monorail radio Disney Plus roulette. So please give us some numbers. And we are going to have another giveaway to talk about next week from our friends at the Hidden Mickey Supply Co. Thank you guys again. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Monoreal Radio. You can also follow us on TikTok at Monorail Radio. Like, subscribe, and rate the show on your podcast platform of choice for links to all the social media, the email, or the podcast. We are online at monorealradio.com. For Jackie, I'm Sean. Have a magical week, everyone.